everyone. Welcome to this 15th talk on Meditations on the Tarot, A Journey into Christian Hermeticism. This talk is on the 15th major arcanum of the Tarot, Le Diable, the Devil. Now, this is a shorter talk than usual. Um, it's a peculiar card, the first real anomaly of all the cards that we've dealt with, the first one where the author takes a turn, the first one where the author is hesitant and a bit dubious and a bit strange, and it's completely understandable because we're dealing with the devil. And really, one noticed this this with this 15th card of, the 15th major arcanum, the devil, that the fact that the author for the first time doesn't begin the card with any excerpts from the Gospels, any excerpts from mystical literature at all. He dives straight into the imagery of the card. Now, this may be because he doesn't particularly want to conflate or draw in the genuinely uh, divine or above with the below, which is really what we're talking about. And we really move from the last card, the 14th card, into this 15th card. So we move from one winged entity who was pouring the water, who had that relationship from between the above and the below. And now we are confronted with this very horrible looking winged entity holding a tapered torch in their, right, uh, in their left hand, above two beings bound to a pedestal on which this winged being is standing upright. The author calls this the card of counter-inspiration. So the previous, the previous card was to do with tears, weeping, an excessive being, an excessive divine joy and temperance. And this card is in the opposite way, in a way, is to do with electrical fire and intoxication, an electrical fire of that friction that we've learned of from below and intoxication. So this card, once again, takes us back to the idea of what it is to have a divine Im image and a likeness and but really in relation to the below and below. And what we're really looking at is perversion, a perversion of nature. However, for the author, there is an intrinsic difference here, which is really what makes this card peculiar in the idea that each of these cards has been a meditation on the tarot and a, a literal meditation to meditate something to meditate on. Of course, the author is really writing in the Catholic tradition and is Catholic and is more than likely, most definitely Valentin Tomberg, who was at this juncture of his life, a devout Catholic. And he sort of says, well, we don't really want to meditate on this card because a meditation is in some sense an identification of something to, to, to develop an internal intuition of it. Because as the author emphasizes, this, is a card of, this card is literally the devil, the imagery of the devil. So in the act of spiritual meditation, you know, we're, as I said, we're lending to an identification with the subject of the meditation, to an active intuition regarding the thing meditated on. And so... We don't want, the author says, to lead to an identification with the subject of this card because one does not want to arrive at some sort of internal intuition of evil where they understand it in any distinct sense. And actually we'll see that this isn't particularly possible. So this isn't really a meditation in that sense. This is, a, this is a, as we'll see much later, a warning card. So many so-called occultists or of people of that ilk, um, the author says, have an obsession with... Um, evil and the, the forms evil take, especially with anth in, within anthro, uh, anthroposophy, anthroposophy, 
he says, the work of Rudolf Steiner. Uh, Steiner and the anthroposophists often talk about twofold or threefold evil uh, to do with Lucifer and Ariman. Now, this is really like the subjective and objective principles of evil, uh, with each of these, Ariman and Lucifer, respectively relating to the East, the West, with Ariman representing materialism and material civilization, and really uh, with Lucifer representing something more mystical for Steiner. And really the author says that these people sort of eventually occupy themselves with evil, it becomes a preoccupation with evil, and really almost clips their wings because they're caught up in the sense that they've meditated on it so much that their own wings get clipped and they're caught up in this, and it's not a good way, it stifles, it stifles the good. So in the sense that one is preoccupied with evil and what evil is doing, they tend to overlook the fact or ignore uh, that the fact that love is the vital element of all profound knowledge and intuitive knowledge from God as given as legitimate from above. And in this sense, one can't love evil, right? So you're always in this bind where if you're, if you're contemplating or meditating on evil, there isn't, a, there isn't a possibility for love to come in because you can't love evil. You know, to take the metaphor of darkness and light, darkness by its very definition is something that doesn't let light in. So you can't have those. And in this sense, you know, Evil actually, for this, for, for the author of the Meditation on the Tarot, this is the reason that evil is actually unknowable. Because you can and and you can because it because it is this indefinite disordered thing that becomes unknowable in its essence, and one can actually only understand it as an observer. So when we turn to the great chain of being, which we've talked spoken about before, and the celestial hierarchies, one will actually be searching in vain for the hierarchy of evil because we simply don't know it. The author states that there are many uh, grimoires of sorcerers throughout history who have the names of particular beings, but they can't really classify them in any certain position. We sort of know that the devil, the, the devil in some traditions, the canonical Christian tradition is, of course, the top. But within different differing traditions, you have all these other names and all these other demons, but they don't seem to find a place, and it's because it's unknowable. Um, and it's because... When we think of the great chain of being, it's ordered, it's hierarchical. When we think of evil, it's chaos. It's a chaotic world. Hell is chaos. Um, and so, it, or at least the author says, it presents itself as such to the observer. So entering into this chaos then ultimately means you just immediately lose your way. Okay, It's a confusion. And this is why a meditation on such such a symbol as this is tr is a tricky matter because you're entering yourself into chaos which is why the the author is really saying that this card is a warning later on and so we seek to comprehend it at a distance via the phenomenological method though the author's use of the word phenomenological here i don't actually agree with but um so and then he throws that in and then doesn't go anywhere with it anyway so let's look at the card it represents three, and let's look at it again. It represents three personages. That's what the author calls them. The one in the middle is larger than the two others. He is, he or she is standing upright on a pedestal to which the other two are attached. Um, he is in the middle and is androgynous um, with the wings raised, with bat's wings raised upwards. His right hand is raised, his left hand is directed downwards, holding a lighted torch. Uh, his wings and legs are blue. This is the author's description, uh, and it's very difficult to find the cards that match up. And there is a yellow skull cap with two yellow horns, in forms of antlers. He is naked, save for his skull cap and red girdle. Now, the author never. The author always emphasizes colors and things like that, but never really goes into them. The two others, uh, the two other personages that we see here, are naked. Uh, they are a naked man and a woman. They have tails, and they have forms of antlers and beasts on their head with also with red skull caps and horns 
Their arms are tied behind their back and a piece of cord is passed around their necks, fastening them to a central ring on the, the lower red colour of this central personage's pedestal. Um, with, res with respect to the central personages, his eyes are crossed and he's fo focused on the bridge of his own nose. The author ultimately sees, um, at first, confusion here. He actually struggles to really delve into the visual aesthetic symbolism of the card for a while. And he struggles to understand what the card is telling us. He asks these very open-ended questions as if he himself is confused. And this is the first card where he has a peculiar hesitation with even trying to take out some meaning. And this is clearly for obvious reasons. It's almost as if he's hesitant to even do it at all. He even seems to be doubting himself. He asks, does it have to do with cosmic metaphysics of evil, the history of rebellion on the part of the celestial hierarchy of the, the, the ancient dragon that fell, who swept down a third of the stars in Revelation? Um, you know, and is it related to this entity of whom Ezekiel spoke about? You are a guardian cherubim with outspread wings. I placed you on the holy mountain of God. You walked into the midst of stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until iniquity was found in you. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. And you, guardian cherubim, have been driven out from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. Unfortunately... Despite this grandeur and amazingly beautiful writing, this isn't this isn't the devil that this card is talking about. For the author, this isn't the devil of this card. It's not to do with the fall of the, the guardian cherubim from the mountain of God, nor to do with the ancient dragon, or to do with the war in heaven with the archangel Michael. The card is to do with slavery. It's to do with forfeiting one's freedom and becoming slaves to degeneracy and monstrosity and artificiality. The theme... The central theme is of the generations of demons, the engendering of demons that have the power over the ones who generate them. It is a card about the creation of artificial beings and the slavery of the creator to his creation. And we'll see, and you can look back at that card, you realize actually what you presumed is in reverse, but isn't. So evil for the author consists not only in fallen entities, but also those who are then made outside of the hierarchy of the heavens and born of tertiary causes, artificially created, autonomous creatures, such creatures whose soul is actually just a special passion in their body and is just a totality of their electromagnetic vibrations produced by that passion solely in the below outside of the celestial hierarchy. Such, such demons are are and can be engendered by human communities, such as the monstrous gods of the Phoenicians, the Mexicans, the Tibetans, and even so far as Canaan in Moloch uh, in, in Canaan um, is what we now commonly know as an egregore, E-G-R-E-G-O-R-E, -E, if people don't know of that word, an egregore. The aim of this demon creation, strangely, and not so strangely from the point of view of the demon, the aim of the certain, of this this artificial demon creation is actually to arrive at the point where one disbelieves in the demons they've created as if so, so they've created these demons artificially through forces of will and imagination but after the creation that the purpose of the demons in that sense is actually to get people to disbelieve they've created them and to understand them as something else altogether um, the author cites many long passages in this in this card um, about the building up of expertise in creating these demons and having the um 
then having the incredulity to not believe in them. In doing so, man becomes the creator of his own heaven and hell without actually knowing he's in it. And all such demons are nothing but their own follies, but they they, they sort of gain an autonomy because they're no longer believed in as what they actually are. So this is really against the second commandment of making idols. The demons are engendered in this manner in everywhere. Um, for Carl Jung, such demons were not... Um, were were like an autonomous complex, an autonomous formation, intruding upon consciousness as if an autonomous complex was actually capable in itself of interfering into the personal psyche of the person in their mental life. So it becomes its own thing, external once again. And this is really for the author what we understand. It's a demon. A demon is this... Um, is, is a complex that sort of acts outside of the psychic life of the individual. But it's also many, many other things as well. But Saint, And the problem with seeing it just as this complex which acts outside of the psyche in, the, in relation solely to the psyche, the, the author brings this in and says, well, this isn't quite right either, because when we look at the notes of St. Anthony the Great, he notes that the literal assaults of demons have caused bruises to the body. And so it's no longer simply psychology, but objective. So the author then asks, well, how are such demons engendered? And it is ultimately the cooperation, and not a marriage, and not a um, not a uh, a birth in the natural sense, but the cooperation of the male and female principles in a perverse way. The male and the female, the will and the imagination, the cooperation of th these. It is a des desire that is actually perverse and contrary to nature. That's why you have this androgynous figure. In the sense of the card that the two smaller personages are actually the parents of the demon that, have that, that they have become enslaved to. They represent the perverse will and imagination which is contrary to nature and has given birth to this, this androgynous demon. And this is what we call an egregore. The author relates this to Karl Marx, actually, in his Communist Manifesto. When Marx says, a spectre is haunting Europe, the spectre of communism, such a spectre, an egregore, grows in stature and engendered by the will of the masses and their perverse imagination. For in Marxism, there, there, uh, there are no gods, and there is no god. So there is no gods in the plural, and there are no gods. There are only demons in the sense of everything is a human creation of will and imagination. Marxism understands all religions, um, all religions and things of this type as ideological superstructures born from the will of man. So there's no gods, there's no god, there is simply these egregores. And, and so what we're really looking at then is the difference between the revelation of divine truth, once again, and the manifestation of the will of human beings, those who follow God, and those that follow the idols of man from below, the above, the below, once again. So this card is, isn't a practice, it's a warning to all those who actually take this stuff seriously, that the generation of artificial demons holds a power over those who have engendered them. The power of the demons in question resides in our will and imagination, and thus knowing this, the author states that we should make it um, make our will and imagination silent, as we've seen before. Such exercises um, as in silence, the exercise of silence, doesn't only keep things secret, um, you know, to guard the holy things from the profane. Um, but silence, above all, is is something which doesn't allow in the personal will and imagination and thus doesn't allow the engendering of demons. It's the silence which it silences the arbitrary, in arbitrary magic, which we saw much, much earlier. It is silence which keeps the sacred sacred. It is 
that earlier intoxication we spoke about, which is literally the excess outside of silence, which owes itself to the will and the imagination and thus brings something else about. We see this in Karl Marx, where he gets intoxicantly carried away with the interests of the workers uh, and the human being on such a level that he begins to make statements regarding cosmic and historical significance in themselves are ridiculous. He's, he's intoxicated by his own words and developing this egregore. And such an intoxication and excess, two brilliant words to think about it, go beyond the limits of any human comprehension and thus make oneself not doubt oneself at all. And in such a lack of doubt, it follows that you end up disbelieving that the demons they've engendered. It's just this like, oh, absolutely, this must be everything that I'm making. So let's look at what St. Anthony the Great um, said regarding the problem of demons. I think the body has a natural movement adapted to it, which is not produced of the soul and does not want it. There's only a movement without passion arises in the body. There is also another movement which comes from the nourishment uh, proceeding from food and drink. The warmth of blood that is thus provoked excites the body to action. There is another movement for, who, for those who are struggling, which comes from the snares and jealousies of demons. It is known that the body, there is three kinds of carnal movements. The first is a natural movement inherent in it. Second is the body is produced by the abundancy of food and drink. And the third movement comes from evil spirits. So the beginner struggles against the second movement. The more advanced one goes forward, um, the more advanced one becomes spiritually, we can speak of advancement, they eventually are dealing with demons and serious spiritual temptation. So the scale of temptation corresponds to spiritual advancement, and thus temptation becomes moves further and further away from the below, material temptations, to the above, spiritual temptations. And it's silence which guards against these temptations and changes um, the place of those who remain in silence uh, from communion possibly with the blow to communion with the above. It's once again that movement from the horizontal life to the vertical life. Okay, So such progress is really accompanied by more and more subtle temptations and the vices of the flesh are overtaken by the assaults of demons which in themselves are spiritual temptations. And lastly on the threshold of all of this is the God himself and this final temptation that St. John of the Cross talks about in the dark night of the soul, which is the final decision between God or complete nothingness. And this is what St. Anthony the Great said when he meant, sorry, when he said, no one, if he is not tempted, will be able to enter the kingdom of heaven for take, for take away temptations and no one is saved. But how then is in this, what are we meant to do in this decision between God and nothingness? How are we meant to uh, distinguish between inspiration and counter-inspiration. The, or the author cites many, many long passages here, specifically of St. Anthony the Great and of St. Teresa of Avila. Okay. So, St. Anthony the Great says that um, with the visions of the Holy One and their, their internal silence, it's it's not turbulent. Okay, The visions of what is holy is quiet, is gentle, there's a gladness, a courage, and a joy which arises in the soul. Whereas the appearance and attack of evil ones is confusing, it's crashing, it's roaring, it's shouting, there is a terror. And St. Teresa of Avila um, re really repeats this, and she says that attacks on the soul in this way are left with a dryness, a weird disquiet, a bewilderment, uh, uh, being perturbed. It's a disorder and a chaos that we spoke about earlier. And this is traditional doctrine based on experiences throughout the centuries. Um, so when we return to these artificially created demons, the one that we engender ourselves, and sometimes we actually even call these good demons, okay, for there is a thesis that 
Some egregores are bad and some are good. Okay, it gives rise it gives rise to the idea that we could collectively create a demon for a special purpose. And in this sense, such people as Marxists actually believe that well, maybe some people believe they're just creating a good demon in the sense that Catholicism, the Orthodox Church, are merely themselves just these manifested wills. So this would be the materialist understanding of what religion is. And it's from the earlier idea that we thought that. Um, the, the only way you can understand this is from the belief that you realize demons don't exist. And so everything becomes this complete ignorance where the only way you can understand something is to say that, oh, it's some ideology or something or other, right? You're, you're, you're denying the above, okay? Um, when the human community on the level outside of the material and in, and in concordance with the above actually does take such ideas in positive senses with relation to those um, holy things which the saints were speaking about, it's no longer a demon that's created. I mean, that's just stupid. It's an angel which is taking responsibility, as we saw in the last card, okay? It's a guidance from Christ. It's a guidance legitimized from above, as opposed to a guidance, uh, a self-willed, imaginative guidance pushed from below, okay? Back to the idea of the legitimacy of love, uh, above in relation to true mission, as opposed to this electrical intoxication from the below and artificial creation. It's, once again, horizontal versus the vertical, above versus the or below versus the above, okay? So does is there any practical significance that comes from this card, okay? Um, you know, how do, how do we combat demons once they've been made? How do we protect ourselves? And actually, it's a fairly short answer. Good doesn't combat evil in the sense of destruction, okay? Good combats, combats evil in the sense of just being present, okay? Darkness by its very definition, it has no light in it. But darkness also, by its very definition, lets light in. So by its very presence, good combats, quote-unquote, evil. And it gives way, evil gives way to the presence of good. Light drives out darkness. Therefore, if a demon is simply perceived uh, and not understood in this ignorant way that we've been talking about, then we forget them and the light of consciousness, the light of the Lord is thrown upon them and the demon is already rendered impotent because we know what they are, okay? If we can say to a demon that he is a demon, then much most of the power is already diminished because you just aren't going to have that conversation, okay? So you combat evil by rendering it visible. This leads to the question, how can we protect ourselves against, uh, against such things? One really needs rest to do this, okay? The author gives a couple of short exercises, which I will allow the reader to read for themselves if they wish to. Uh, it's not my job to put those sort of things out here and but the author says in law one cannot win by simply driving the attorney away one must convince him of the innocence of the accused one must become silent again and retreat into that solitary way self-knowledge understanding of the leg legitimacy of above and not giving oneself over not being a slave staying in that silence and solitary nature so that is, uh, that's this talk. It's a shorter talk. It's a peculiar, very peculiar card. The author is on the back foot. Um, and yeah, things seem to become normal again uh, in the next card. Uh, if you've enjoyed these, of course, this is uh, one of the free ones. This is 15. So if you've enjoyed this and you wanna, uh, want to, half of these are free, the other half of patrons only. Uh, thanks to all my patrons. But if you've enjoyed this and you want to um, get access to them all, then find the Patreon link in the description below where there is links to them all. Thank you very much. See you in the next talk.